My name is uh, Roel Schnieder and my work seeks to understand the behavior of very small and minute velocity changes as a function of time in rocks. Hello, my name is Andrew Gary and welcome to Seismic Sound Off in-depth conversations in applied geophysics. In this episode, I'm joined by Roel Schneider to discuss his 2022 distinguished lecture, Measuring Variations in the Seismic Velocity as a Diagnostic of Rock Damage and Healing. This is a wide-ranging conversation with surprising insights into rocks, as well as how to live a successful life. Roll shows that the seismic velocity is not constant at all. It varies with the seasons, temperature, precipitation, and ground shaking. He also discusses how logarithmic healing in rocks is a widespread behavior that is akin in its generality to the Gutenberg-Richter law. Roll also provides insights into the role of spirituality in science and offers actionable tips on preventing burnout. Let's get to my conversation with Roll Sneeder. Well, we are having the privilege to talk to you today about the, your upcoming distinguished lecture, and that is titled Measuring Variations in the Seismic Velocity as a Diagnostic of Rock Damage and Healing. I don't see that term healing frequently in ge- geophysics. What do you mean by that in this lecture? Yeah, you know, that, that's a great question because with healing, we like to, uh, we like to think of healing as sort of a biological issue. You, you cut your skin and the skin is broken and then the, 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 the skin heals again. And, and one of the surprises of the research that was by done by myself, but also from other, others in the field, has been that what we see is that after, for example, strong shaking, uh, the seismic velocity in rocks drops, not by a whole lot, uh, usually a fraction of a percent. And then it recovers again. And it, it almost looks like the, the, there is no, the rocks never reach a true equilibrium because they're always being perturbed. So they are being damaged by external perturbations, mostly vibrations. And then they heal again, just like biological tissues do. And that was quite a surprise for me when we, when we first saw this. That is that is pretty neat. My ankle is currently healing from an injury, and it's just fascinating how the body does that. And it's pretty neat that rocks do that as well. What about your work and study inspired you to develop this particular lecture? Well, it, it really was a, I mean, to be honest, it was a surprise to me that we can measure very small velocity changes in either in, in laboratory conditions or in the subsurface. And it's very small, I mean, like of the order of a, of a, of a tenth of percent. Uh, if the conditions are right, it's actually not difficult to do this. What sort of opened up was, was a new world in the sense that seismic velocity was not a constant, but it was changing all the time. For example, there's, there's a beautiful study by my colleague Christoph Sanschoenfelder in, in Potsdam. Um, he shows actually that, that seismic velocities change with earth tides. So just like the oceans are, are, are subjected to tides uh, by, because of the gravitational attraction of the moon, so does the Earth is being deformed every uh, 12 hours. And we see that in seismic velocities, at least in some places we see it when the conditions are right. Uh, it's just fascinating that we can, we can measure these things right now. That is a fascinating discovery about the tides. You know, speaking of these really small changes you're noticing, why is it possible to detect these time-lapse changes in the seismic velocity so accurately? Well, you know, the, the, the basic concept is actually, is actually very simple. But we use waves that have bounced around in a medium, and a medium can be a laboratory sample or it can be a, a part of the subsurface of the Earth, that have bounced back and forth repeatedly. 
So because of this bouncing, the waves spend more time traversing the medium and therefore they are more sensitive to changes in the velocity in the medium. So we have, we have many examples where if you look at the direct wave, the wave that propagates from a source to the receiver and, and you perturb the medium, for example, in a rock sample that you slowly uh, heat up, you don't see any changes in that first arrival. But now you look at changes that have bounced back and forth in the rock sample and that have effectively had a propagation path that was 10 times as long. Uh, so you're looking at, at the scattered wave or the resonances, and you can see very well detectable changes in those, in those later arriving waves. So the, so the key is to basically look at later arriving waves, waves that have bounced back and forth in the medium that you are investigating for a long time. What are, I feel like this kind of a bit, you're getting it to it there. What are some settings where you detect these velocity changes? Yeah, but there's many. We've measured velocity changes in laboratory samples. That's that's the easiest application. Uh, But we also have measured it in the field. And a big driver for this has been the development of seismic interferometry where we basically use ambient noise to, to find the waves that propagate between receivers. And because the ambient noise is always present, you can measure the velocity changes almost continuously in time. You can also extract the waves that propagate between sensors from ambient noise repeatedly and then average over different measurements so that, that will reduce your noise levels. So it is the, the development of seismic interferometry where you extract the waves that propagate between sensors from ambient noise that has been a big driver for this work. But you don't have to be a, you don't have to use ambient noise. In fact, one of the earliest studies on this topic, and that was not done by myself, but it was done by, by Georges Poupinet in the 1980s, uh, was using earthquakes. If you have repeat earthquakes, and that happens often on faults where you get sort of repeat earthquakes in almost the same locations with the same source mechanisms, you can use those as a source. So there's a whole variety of different situations where where you can extract data that are useful to detect velocity changes. Is it generally thought that seismic velocity is constant? Well, the word generally is, of course, difficult, but you know, this is how I was raised, right? You, I mean, you can go to handbooks of rock properties and you can find the seismic velocities of certain rock types. And what we find is it depends very sensitively on, on, on temperature. It can depend on, pre- on pressure. It may depend on the degree to which these rocks have been perturbed by, by deformation, by shaking. It may depend on moisture. And, and now we can measure these seismic velocities so accurately, we see that, at least in the near surface, they, they change all the time. But of course, it depends on what you mean with the word constant. And I mean, I'm, I am talking about very small perturbations, in general, less than a percent. What is the role of time in measuring seismic velocity? Yeah, that, that's a great question. You know, there's really two times involved that you need to distinguish. The first is the, the time the waves have spent propagating through the medium. And I talked about that earlier, where we I made the distinction between the perturbation of the direct wave versus the perturbation of the of the later arriving waves. So there there is arrival time. But in addition to that, there is of course the, the time of day, if you want, or the date at which I measure the rock properties. And to distinguish that, I, I usually in my papers I use the word time and age. Age denotes the the, the the moment in time when I do the measurements. So I do the measurements today, you know, at eight o'clock. And we, you need to distinguish between these two times because they are very different different issues and you need to treat them in different ways. You know, another word that some might associate with healing that I also haven't associated too much with geophysics is relaxation. What, what exactly is multi-scale relaxation? 
Yeah, well, multi multiscalar relaxation means that if you if you perturb a physical system and then you leave it alone, it very often goes back to its original state. And that's what we mean with relaxation. Although it doesn't need to go back to its original state, it may go to a different state. But in general, after perturbation, many physical systems, they they go back to their original state. So as an example, you know, you can take a, a cup of water and you put it in the microwave, you you increase the temperature and then you put it back in the, in the room and it relaxes back, the temperature of the water relaxes back to the room temperature. That's a very simple example of relaxation. That'll go usually exponential. But what we find is that, that many systems, when they that the relaxation does not behave exponentially, it behaves more like a logarithm of time. And that seems to be a very universal behavior in the sense that many different systems display a logarithmic return to their original state after they've been perturbed. Well, that's a perfect lead into this question. Where else might someone find logarithmic healing? Yeah, you know, everywhere, everywhere. So, for example, this morning I got up, I got, I got up early for this interview. I wanted to make coffee. I poured coffee beans into the container because the container was empty. And as always, I pour in too many beans, right? So what do you do? You tap the container and then, and then sort of the coffee beans settle. Well, there have been many studies which show that in a granular medium, sand, coffee beans, glass beads, if you tap them, the medium compacts. And it also happens logarithmically in general. You find logarithmic healing in the deformation after earthquakes in the earth. If you have an earthquake, you get a, you get a it's called a post-seismic deformation. The, the, the rock has been deformed. Uh, it relaxes back then to a new equilibrium state that typically also happens logarithmically. And we typically also find, if you look at velocity changes in the in, in rock samples, after the samples have been perturbed, the, the relaxation of the rock also behaves logarithmically in time. And so it, it looks like a fairly universal behavior. I'm, I'm careful to use the word universal because, of course, there are exceptions, like the, the cup of water that we've heated and we got out of the microwave. That just decays exponentially. But you get a logarithmic healing because there's many different healing processes taking place and each of them have a different time scale so that's why we also talk about multi-scale relaxation and, and you can show that the, the combination of all these different healing processes each with their own with your own time scale together then manifest it as a logarithmic time behavior that that's a very relatable example you you offered there there you know, who who is the perfect audience for this talk, for this distinguished lecture? Well, I think, first of all, geophysicists, and especially geophysicists who are interested in, in, in time-lapse changes in the, in the subsurface. But as I indicated, there's many other examples where this topic might be relevant, other examples in, 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 in science and technology. I, I know that seismologists in general are very much interested in this topic. I think the real challenge that we have is to relate the, the seismic observations that we do, uh, and we know now how to do them really well, to what happens at the micro scale. And I really also hope that rock physicists who work in laboratory measurement, and especially those that have the ability to to, to image structures at the at the, at the micro scale, or maybe even even smaller, are, are involved in this because we we can observe the healing very well, but we don't really know exactly what it means at a micro scale. Then there's there's plenty of examples that come to mind where uh, th this is very relevant. Hydraulic fracturing is, is, is one of those examples where you, you typically fracture a rock and, and then you, you want to know how the rock behaves after you fractured it and especially how the, 
to what extent the permeability remains high and you know, seismic velocities might be a way to monitor that. It may not be the best way to monitor it. Uh, so there's a, there's, a, there's a whole sort of group of potential applications and I'd love to to be colleagues to uh, to look at those applications. What is a question you hope attendees ask themselves after this lecture? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Well, I, I hope they are intrigued by the word healing because I think it's a it's a poorly understood mechanism in uh, in rock physics. So I hope they they are just intrigued by that uh, by, by that whole concept. I also hope they ask them the question: Well, how can you measure these velocities so accurately? And I will explain that. So it's both on the on questions related to the sort of the wave aspects of the work, which is what I've been f- focusing most, as well as on the, on the meaning of that work. So what, what does it really tell us about rock samples? Well, you are also the co-author or author of, of several other books and, you know, kind of transition for a couple questions into some more practical matters, maybe as a scientist. Uh, two of those books, The Art of Being a Scientist and a Guide for Graduate Students and Their Mentors, you know, kind of a a very hot question I think a lot of people get in general right now is burnout. How can researchers and scientists minimize their chance of feeling or, or reaching burnout? Yeah. Well, you know, actually, this is this issue is also addressed in, in my third book, uh, The Joy of Science, which is which is my most recent book. And, and, and it describes on how to how to live your life as a scientist and how to sound sort of prescriptive that's not what i what i mean that I, I i certainly don't want to be normative and i also don't give recipes but I, you, the book contains a lot of ideas of on, on how to avoid burnout and to have sort of a harmonious life as a scientist i think i think it's very important that we have sort of rich lives and um, if, if our focus lies completely on our on our research and if that research doesn't go well, or we have setbacks otherwise, that's sort of a recipe for, for burnout. Um, and so just like a financial portfolio that you diversify, I think it's, it's, it's good to have also a diversified personal portfolio. I've always done that. You know, when I was an undergraduate student, I went to vocational school to be a carpenter. I have been a volunteer firefighter for 14 years. I've even been fire chief. I did this next to my job. I've, I've now a certified coach and I'm starting up a coaching practice. Um, and I think, although those activities don't make my life easier in the sense of time pressures, they they enrich my life. And if they if you have a true passion for for those activities, um, it can really help burnout. Because just like like a diversified financial portfolio, you have a more diversified personal or, or emotional portfolio. So that will be my recipe recipe number one. And the the other thing I, I wanted to add to that is to to be aware of your beliefs. And I we we described it in, in a lot of details, and and we, by the way, is my co-author Jen Jen Schneider and myself in our book The Joy of Science. Many of us in the in the scientific community hold sort of very strange beliefs. Beliefs like, for example, I can only contribute to my research if I give it everything I have. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't work hard. I'm not saying that we shouldn't push, but it doesn't mean that our research has to be the only thing that that we do. Another one of those beliefs is I can only contribute when I'm the best. But that's, that's a very sort of destructive belief because only one people in every field can be the best. And the chances that you are that person are very small. So to examine those beliefs and to and to reframe them in a way that serves you. I can talk about this for a long time. Uh, but those are sort of the two main things that, that come up. It's, it's very fascinating. When you first said the word beliefs, uh, you know, I kind of thought, 
about this next question about the role of spirituality in science. And it was nice to hear you talk a little bit more generally about beliefs, which I liked almost kind of like uh, paradigms or models of thinking there. But looking at that, what is the role of spirituality within science? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I love that question. Uh, one of the, the classes that I love teaching is uh, science, a class, Science of Spirituality, that I teach to undergraduates at the School of Mines. I teach it every semester now, and uh, the class fills up in like an hour when, when it is open for registration. I think science is not complete. I think science gives an incomplete description of reality. Um, so I, I can give you many examples, but I, I just want to give you one example, consciousness, you know, the sense of identity that we have, the sense of will that we have, the sense of agency that we have. I know this is a topic that, that neuroscientists are, 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 are looking for. They're, they're looking at neuronal patterns that are associated with, with, with consciousness. Um, they've not been very successful. That doesn't mean that they will not be successful. It may just mean that the, the, the problem is too complicated. Or it may mean that consciousness is more than neuronal activity. We just don't know. This is one of those basic questions that we should always sort of seek to address before we dive into the science. Like, you know, what, what are my premises? What, what do I assume? Which obviously is very difficult in the question of consciousness. And I think... You know, science is, is based on a very material paradigm and we, and it tries to reduce a lot of phenomena to physical phenomena. In this case, for example, explaining consciousness out of electro, electrical chemical activity in the brain. But maybe that's not enough. And there, there are serious philosophers like Davis Chalmers who means, who, who say that, no, you, you know, consciousness has to be, it's, it's a separate fundamental property, just like mass and length and time. Consciousness is a, is a several is an independent quantity, and we need to treat it as such for it to make sense. So, I think science is incomplete. I think, as we as we all know, not everybody's willing to acknowledge that, and especially when it comes to sort of the matters of mind, when it comes to spiritual issues, um, I, I, I think there's a lot of enrichment in science that, that that can be done. And by the way, also the other way around, of course. Yeah, you kind of just think about well before science kind of reached its heyday in the Enlightenment, how so many of these things that we're learning from ancient traditions are, you know, scientists are now discovering, yeah, that is actually a really good way. way. Yeah. I like the sentence which I wrote down without thinking about it, which is, does mind matter? And does matter mind? And I think it captures that whole dilemma that I just, just talked about in just one sentence. Well, speaking of, uh, you know, so many of the things you mentioned in the question before, what has being a professor, an author, a carpenter, a, a fire chief brought into your life? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm a very restless person and I, I sort of crave change and variety. Uh, although I can also be set in my ways in, 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 that, in other aspects. But uh, I've, I've made a lot of changes in my life. I've, I've moved around in my research. I'm also now moving around a lot in my teaching focusing a lot of professional development education and i i need that movement now that not not everybody needs that movement but for me it has been very very important in in starting in starting new things i notice if i start do, doing the same thing for a long time it starts to become dull and unimaginative and i think the every time when i made a switch to something new those were the most creative moments in my in my career those were also the moments when I had the largest number of stupid ideas. 
but that's okay. It's okay to have stupid ideas as long as you can weed them out early. So for me, change has worked really well. To be a firefighter has been truly transformative, actually. And I've, I've been thinking about this a lot, like how can we bring the positives of being a firefighter to, to the research environment? For, for example, you know, the research environment is usually very, very much focused on the individual. All our evaluations are very individually based. On the fire ground, you know, individual achievement often is very dangerous. It's about it's about the teamwork. How do you how do you exploit the team in the best way? How do you work together in a way that is safe? Uh, on the fire ground, you always work with a buddy. You never are alone. You're together with another person, and you look out for each other. And that creates an incredible amount of camaraderie that I actually miss in a, in in academic environments. That sense of camaraderie, that sense of doing something together, working collectively to for something good and looking out after each other. I miss that. Well, kind of the, the last question here is almost going back to first principles, maybe that led you to kind of look at your career in this way. Was there a particular principle or teaching or point of view that kind of has led you down this path to help you succeed in your field? I'm not sure there was a, a principle, but I've been extremely lucky in the people that I that have trained me. Uh, I've had incredible academic advisors who have always encouraged me to seek out new directions and who've expressed confidence in me, who've who let me, who gave me the opportunity to make mistakes and to help me recover after I made those mistakes. And I think it's very important in the, the training of our young people that we bring those qualities to the, to the training. So it, it, it's not so much a, a principle, but just lessons that I've learned from from very caring mentors and advisors. Well, Roll, I really appreciate your thoughtful responses and, and unique and interesting responses. We'll have the information for the Distinguished Lecture in the show notes. And best of luck in this lecture. And I hope you get some really good questions and some really good, uh, I'm sure you're going to leave the people there with a lot of, lot to think about. Yeah, well, thank you, Andrew, for, for doing this interview. And I, I really look forward to giving the giving the lecture. It'll be, it'll be a fun experience. SCG produces Seismic Sound Off to benefit its members, the scientific community, and inform the public on the value of geophysics. To show your support for this show, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Simply go to Seismic Sound Off on Apple Podcasts and Spotify on your phone. It takes less than five seconds to leave a five-star rating and is the number one action you can take to show your appreciation for this free resource. And follow the podcast while you are on the app to be notified when each new episode releases. Original music created by Zach Bridges. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Gary at 51 Features. The SEG podcast team is Jennifer Cobb, Kathy Gamble, and Ali McGinnis. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.